Good morning, everyone. I'm Dan Seitz, uh, one of the pastors here. Really good to have you here for Advent Week One. I don't know about you, but this Christmas, I am ready for joy. Are you with me? I am ready for joy. And uh, I intend to soak it up all month despite the busyness. And that means, among other things, when Allison again, just like she did last night, says to me, Dan, let's go get hot chocolate and then let's go home and let's watch a Christmas movie. I am going to be game for it, okay? Just like you, that's right, that's right. Uh, because it just dawned on me as I was thinking about this this past week, if I wait to be caught up on everything before I attempt to soak up Christmas joy, it will never happen. After all, the last time that I was caught up on everything, okay, every phone message, uh, every errand, uh, every email, last time I was caught up on everything was September 8th, okay, 1987. <laughs> that's true. Uh, uh, that's true. J just finished my first summer at Camp Hammer. Uh, three weeks later, I was heading off to college. I had nothing to do uh, for three weeks. Glorious times. Never happened since 36 years ago. So who's with me? Who this Christmas, oh, I like what I'm seeing. Who this Christmas wants to be, I think it'll pop up again, this guy rather than this guy. Okay, the first guy. Who's, who wants to be Andy and not the Grinch? I'm a little disappointed with the response. All of your hands should be up. Your family wants you to be Andy and not the Grinch, okay? All right, let me pray for us as we get going with this Advent. Father, help us all this Advent, uh, especially my fellow Grinches, to look up from the stress, to look up from the sorrow of the headlines and focus on your son, our King, who came to us at Christmas and in our church and in our workplace, in our schools, and first and foremost in our homes with whoever we live with, make us bestowers of joy rather than joy black holes. That's what I want. Do it in my heart, Lord. And we pray this in the name of that son who came, uh, amen. Speaking of black holes, uh, one year ago, almost to the day, uh, scientists made an absolutely stunning announcement. And if a year ago you were absorbed by the World Cup, which started just about the same time, uh, you might have missed it. But get this, a year ago, a team led by a Caltech physicist announced that they had created a wormhole. Anyone remember this? when it happened, you're all soccer fans, obviously, all right? It was a simulated wormhole uh, made inside a fancy quantum computer, but it was a wormhole nonetheless. Now speaking now to my fellow social science majors, a wormhole is a portal between two remote regions of space. But here's what's really cool about this simulated wormhole. If you have ever lost sleep over the thought of getting trapped in a black hole, like I have, <laughs> after my cousin Sean, 
told me about black holes when I was in the fourth grade. If that's you, you've lived with that fear for a long time, cheer up. Because this discovery is one step in the direction of black hole escape technology, which I know will be next year's must-have Christmas gift, okay? Well, this computer wormhole, which honestly, uh, I don't understand uh, in the least bit, got me thinking about our Advent passage, which is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. You see, in this passage, which we're going to be digging into all the month of December, is a wormhole of sorts. It's an escape hatch, an escape hatch from a black hole, not a literal one, but an escape hatch from the black hole of sadness, of despair, of hopelessness over the state of the world. And I mean that. It really is. This passage is a tunnel right out of gloom, right into gladness. And that's because it's a passage about what came true on the first Christmas. Not just true in some mythic way, uh, some distant, abstract, religious way, but something that became true objectively, something that came true historically with the birth of Jesus the King. So if you need a jolt of Christmas joy this Christmas, you are here at the right time. And I wanna invite you, keep coming to these Advent services. Don't miss one Sunday in December. What's the context of this passage? What's the context of Isaiah 9, 6 through 7? It's the late 8th century BC, and things are grim in southern Israel. <laughs> Where have I heard that <laughs> before? Sounds like the headlines. Uh, grim in southern Israel, in Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, at this point, the nation of Israel, God's special nation uh, for being the, the transmitter of God's love and God's truth throughout the whole world, uh, has had a civil war. They're split. And the northern kingdom of Israel and their ally, the country of Syria, they want the southern kingdom, Judah, to make an alliance with them uh, in their fight against this big bully nation of Assyria, which is threatening from the East. Well, for various reasons, King Ahaz of Judah, he doesn't want to do it. Maybe he's like Switzerland and he wants to maintain neutrality. Well, this infuriates the northern kingdom. This infuriates uh, the king of that kingdom in Syria. And in response, they begin to menace Judah. They say, we're going to invade. You either join us uh, or we're going to attack you. And to say the least, things are grim in Judah. And everyone in the southern kingdom is just feeling incredible dread, like things are falling apart. Things are coming to an end. And Isaiah describes the southern kingdom this way. Listen to this, Isaiah 7, 2. They're shaking as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's how they're feeling. And a lot of people that I know, a lot of people that I hear about today are like those people in southern Judah. They are shaking. They are feeling incredible dread. They're feeling deep dread over the state of the world. A lot of people I know are feeling deep dread over the state of their own lives. A lot of people I know are feeling deep dread over the well-being of their children. Uh, either their adult kids in many cases 
uh, or their adolescent kids. And I actually think that just deep existential dread that seems to be everywhere right now is actually making everybody drive crazy. Have you noticed this? I really think this is it. I mean, wild, reckless, I don't care anymore driving. You know, we ask, uh, you know, why are today's teens so slow in getting their license? I got mine the day I turned 16. Maybe because they're sensible? That's my answer. Maybe they're watching. Maybe they're seeing the chaos out there. We live in Pleasant Hill. I have to go on Taylor Boulevard to get home every day. It's like a scene out of Mad Max. It's wild. But the nation is scared. And when they're in their deep dread, the Lord sends a message to Judas King through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what it basically boils down to. He says, take heart, be encouraged. In fact, it's even more than that. Start rejoicing, you who are dwelling in fear and dread, you who are trapped in the black hole of horror, because your deliverance is coming. And here's why, starting at verse six, and this is our passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Again, rescue is on the way, so cheer up. Now it's hard to tell precisely which son, uh, which rescuing king this prophecy was talking about in its original context. But centuries later, the apostle Matthew, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, understood this prophecy as well as all the prophecies in Isaiah as supremely fulfilled in Jesus the King. Somebody Matthew knew. The Jesus whose life Matthew got to observe up close and personal for three years. And what's the upshot? Here's what. And it's our big idea for this. He shall be called Advent series. Here's what it is. King Jesus, the eternal son who became a human being at the first Christmas is for each of us. Each of us who know him by faith right in this moment, right now and forevermore, he is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our everlasting Father. It means it'll never end. And he's our Prince of Peace. And you see, even though Jesus' royal appearing, the second coming is still to come, since the completion of that life mission that began in the most humble way in a manger in Bethlehem, Jesus is now, right now, for every single one of us who know him, right now he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He's everlasting Father. He's Prince of Peace. And accordingly, each Sunday in this Advent series, again called He Shall Be Called, we're gonna consider what each one of those four names means to better understand who this Jesus is right now, right now for each of us who know him. And this morning, we start with Wonderful Counselor. Now, when we hear the word counselor, a picture immediately pops into our minds. We think 
of a well-trained professional who listens to us and helps us work through problems, uh, addictions and depression and mental health issues and so forth, and then helps us achieve our goals uh, for greater health. In addition, when we think of counselor, we think of someone who can be trusted with what's most personal to us because counselors hold what we share with them in strict confidence. Well, King Jesus who came at Christmas truly is a counselor like that. The living Jesus listens to us when we speak to him. In fact, Jesus misses nothing that we say to him. He catches it all, every cry, every request for help, every groan. You find yourself sometimes just sort of groaning before the Lord, inarticulate moans for help. This is me in the car. And I'm sure that that, that Jesus, this wonderful counselor in this sense, he would like for us to speak to him far more than we do to open up our hearts to him, let him know what's going on. Because as we talked about in week 13 of the Flourishing Trees message series that we just came out of, Jesus wants to know us. And on the last day, he wants to be able to say to us, I knew you. You shared your heart with me. We had a relationship. He genuinely wants us to become teleos, which is one of our two key words for that series, meaning whole on the inside. So what's on the inside and what's on the outside matches. And so what naturally flows from us over time is a Jesus-like life. But there are ways that Jesus obviously surpasses even the most skilled, even the most savvy professional human counselor. Think about it. Whereas human counselors require appointments. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, he's always available to us. There's never a moment he's not available to us. The Psalms say of the God who took on human form in Jesus. It says this, indeed, this God, this Jesus, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. He's always available. Whereas human counselors give us only 50 minutes, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, has unlimited time for us. We can't exhaust him. He never looks at his watch when we're talking. He's always available. And finally, whereas human counselors, even the most savvy, are finite in wisdom, even the, 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 the best ones, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is infinite in wisdom. He has at his disposal the wisdom of God himself, being God himself. In fact, that's the significance of the modifier wonderful here, as in wonderful counselor. This is kind of cool. The Hebrew word pella here is actually a noun, not an adjective, leading some to translate the verse this way. Jesus, the king, is a wonder of a counselor. There's even more to it than that. Pella, Hebrew for wonder in the Old Testament, typically refers to divine wonderfulness. The wonderfulness that is unique to God. So what's the point? Jesus' counsel is divine counsel. It's the perfect counsel of the all-knowing God. He's got no limitations. He's got no blind spots. Now we should take this in. I mean, think about it. If Christianity is true at all, if it's true, and I want to tell you, 
I am absolutely convinced that it is. I'm absolutely convinced because there is no other way to explain the world as we experience it every day. There's no other way. There's no other explanation. I mean, think about it. The suspension of our planet, this blue ball right in the middle of infinite space. How did we get here? Objective moral truth. Every single human being knows that there's a moral law pushing down on us. Everybody knows there's objective right and wrong, even though you can't touch it. And the unparalleled life of Jesus of Nazareth, a life like nobody has ever lived, climaxing in his historically documented resurrection. I mean, if Christianity is true, it means that there is always available to us. And for absolutely no co-pay, a counselor who can guide us through our most difficult circumstances with flawless wisdom, which means as a daily practice, we should go to that counselor. I mean, every single day, we should go to him. We should go to him when we're facing difficult decisions, when we're dealing with really thorny problems. And you know what? We should go to him when we're not we should go to him on those great days where we're not experiencing an acute need for his counsel because of a pressing problem. On those days, and Lord, may there be more of them, right? We pray to him as wonderful counselor preemptively for wisdom. Just as a regular course, we pray this way, King Jesus, wonderful counselor. I'm so thankful. There's nothing huge I have to sort through today, but what do I need to know? to meet the challenges of this day. What do I need to know? Open my mind to your counsel. Speak to me. He will. You know, as I shared with you recently, I have a pastoral mentor, and he is a, a deeply respected and retired covenant pastor uh, named Art Greco. He's based in Marin for many years. And when Art gives me counsel, which he does once a month, like we meet on Monday morning over Zoom, he will often say something like this. Okay, he'll say this. He'll say, but Dan, that's just my thought. Just my thought. You know your context better than I do. Uh, and of course, I respond, ah, you're probably right. This is probably the, not the right time to ask for a lap pool outside of my office. But as wise as Art Greco is, he's finite. He doesn't know everything. He can't offer perfect counsel, but King Jesus on the other hand. Jesus, my wonderful counselor, because I know him by faith. Jesus, the wonderful counselor for all his followers. He never has to offer that caveat. He knows everything about everything. He knows everything about me. And what's more, he's fiercely committed to me. He's proven it by dying on the cross for me. And therefore his perfect counsel is matched by perfect commitment to me. And again, that being the case, why wouldn't we go to him every single day, every day and draw on his counsel, asking him to direct us, asking him to open up our minds so we can see what we can't see so that we can flourish. Why would we deny ourselves that direction? So what have we established? In Jesus the King who came at Christmas, we believers have a wonder of a counselor. We have someone who can give us divine guidance. 
for any and every situation we face. I mean, what a Christmas gift. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Now that leads to an obvious question. It's probably popped in some of your minds already. How, how do we avail ourselves of it? How do we pipe it in as it were? A lot of different channels. I've been cataloging them over the last two weeks as I've been thinking about this, but here are three, starting with the most basic. These are the most fundamental ones. First, sitting in silence. You know, this is so hard for us. I mean, this is hard for us, having become accustomed as we are to constant stimulation. But God the Father explicitly commands disciples to listen to Jesus the wonderful counselor. At the transfiguration, God tells the disciples who are seeing Jesus in his dazzling heavenly glory, he's, he tells them, he says, listen to him. Listening demands silence. We, we can't listen without being quiet. We can't listen to anyone without being silent, without quieting ourselves, including quieting our minds can't do it. And this is especially true, it's especially important with the counsel of Jesus the King whose communication is a little more subtle, a little more coy. But when we are silent, we put the phone away and we're silent in the wonderful counselor's presence, he nudges, he prompts, he awakens us to new realities, he directs. Second channel of the wonderful counselor's counsel, musing upon scripture. Now don't let your eyes roll over. Musing is more than reading. Reading is really important. Musing is different though, and it's different from studying. Listen to the first verse of the Psalms, a book that's meant to be our prayer book. Listen to how it begins. How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked. Instead, he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands Get this, he meditates on his commands day and night. You know, as you'll see in your notes, the Hebrew word translated meditates here means to muse or even to soliloquize, which means, and here I'm talking to the physics majors, okay, to speak one's thoughts aloud. Well, you know, when after a time of silence with Jesus the counselor, and after a time of soaking in scripture, when I do what Psalm 1-1 is talking about, when I talk out loud about the passage, I, 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 partly to Jesus in prayer, partly to myself every time, I sense him nudging, prompting, directing every single time. Musing upon the Word's Word is a way of opening us up to the wonderful counselor's counsel. And the author of Psalm 119, 24 affirms this when he says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. In a third channel of our wonderful counselor's counsel, it's welcoming input. This is huge, so I've saved it for last. In fact, to put it a little more strongly, to welcome in Jesus, the wonderful counselor's counsel, 
we actively seek the wisdom of spiritual friends. And then we're eager to apply it. And I want to tell you, I am doing this more in life right now than I ever have. And if you've had coffee with me regularly, I probably ask you this question. What do you think? What do you see that I don't see? Having said that, you know, none of us really wants to receive input <laughs> from other people. And that's because we want to be seen as supremely capable, as optimally competent, like Iron Man, all right? Or any firefighter I have ever known. They can do everything. We know we're not. We know ourselves. No human is. Still, we want to maintain the charade. But here's the thing. You know, if we struggle with this third channel of receiving the wonderful counselor's counsel, welcoming, seeking the input of other people, it might be because there is one piece of this wonderful counselor picture that we're missing. And if we've missed it, it's understandable because of our cultural distance from this passage. And here's where we come to what for me was the biggest surprise of this verse. Now stay with me here. You see, when people in ancient Israel heard the word counselor, yo'etz in Hebrew, the picture that popped into their minds was actually not a therapist. And it was actually not someone who might have helped them pick their junior year classes. You see, for people in ancient Israel, the counselor, the yo'etz, which is the word that we have here in our verse, was a political figure a powerful political figure, an advisor to the king, and in some cases, second in command to the king. That's what the counselor was. And in your notes, I included one sample verse in which kings and counselors go together. There are many, many others. Well, let's draw the threads together and see what this means for us. If Jesus, the reigning king, is our wonderful counselor, and if counselor, yo eights, first and foremost to the original hearers, the people who are hearing this for the first time, meant advisor to kings, the implication, the strong suggestion is that our purpose in life is to be king-like. His role as wonderful counselor assumes it. Now that might sound crazy to you, but let me show you. The Bible begins with God creating men and women and telling them twice, Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 1.28, to have dominion. That's kingly language. The Bible ends with women and men of the Messiah reigning forever and ever. Revelation 22.5 that's kingly language. In 1 Corinthians, in sort of an offhand way, Paul affirms that the ultimate destiny of Christians is to become royalty over a new creation. Listen to him. This is 1 Corinthians 4.8, maybe a verse that puzzled you when you stumbled upon it from time to time. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Meaning in advance of when you really should be, and finally, Jesus himself tells his followers that their reward for knowing him, following him in this age is, Matthew 19, 28, to sit on 12 thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, that's royal imagery. That's kingly language. And here's what it means. Our created purpose is to be kingly in the world. Kingly in the distinct servant style of King Jesus. The king whose life we're called to imitate. And get this. Kingly in the style of Psalm 72, maybe my favorite psalm, which says that the job of the, get this, the job of the king is to be like rain, allowing everyone in the realm to bloom. May the king be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. Why is this important? Here's why. You see, to seek the wonderful counselor's counsel in silence, in scripture, and especially in the input of other people, especially the people we live with, if they're Jesus followers, in the interest of becoming a, a, a bigger blessing to those in our realms, to do that, to seek and welcome that counsel is to act kingly. It's not to be weak. It's not to be pathetic. It's to be strong. It's to be powerful. It's not dignity. I mean, it's dignity. It's not disgrace. A famous fantasy novel, this young king, punk, 16 years old or so, receives a book of wisdom from one of his royal counselors as a wedding gift. But confident that he already knows everything, he takes another one of his wedding gifts, this huge sword, and right in the middle of the reception, he just chops the book into the wisdom book. This king does not come to a good end, as you can probably imagine. This cannot be said too strongly. True kings, true queens, seek and apply the counsel of other people. They're open to it rather than casting it off. And they do it so that like the picture of Psalm 72, they can be like spring rain, not acid rain. <laughs> to everybody around them. And we can too. We can too. It's actually how we receive Jesus' counsel. It's one of the main ways. We listen to what other people think. We have deep relationships with other people. Uh, relationships with people around Hillside. Uh, relationships with, with people in our groups. And with those people, we're always listening. We're observing. Jesus' counsel can come to us when they don't even know it. We're just, we're just observing. And sometimes it can come to us in a, a, a very distinct way when they, they offer something to us, especially when we ask. And if we want to be kingly, we'll do this. And maybe it means this. When we go to Kairos on Monday night and we're in our groups and we've heard a great message uh, from one of the three main teachers there. We, we go to the group and then we're thinking, Lord, you're gonna say something to me here. I, I'm open to your counsel. And then we listen. 
And then maybe from time to time with the people in our group, we actually say, well, what do you think I need to know that I don't know? You're getting to know me. You're hearing about my challenges, my opportunities and struggles. What do you think? What am I not seeing? We do this with the people we live with. If we're married, we do it with our spouses, especially if the spouse knows Jesus. It can be hard, especially for men. It's hard, right? It's hard for everyone. I think it's especially hard for men. It's hard for me to listen to what Allison wants to say, but she's wise. And Jesus, the King's counsel passes through her into my heart. And if I want to act kingly, I'll listen. And the result will be more nourishing rain following, falling on our family. There are other wonderful counselors in my life here at Hillside. There are council members. There are you all, wise people and leaders. I'm listening because I have influence here and I want my influence at Hillside to be like spring rain. We're going to take communion now. Communion is for everyone who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you know Lord, and Je Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is for you. If you place your faith in him, this meal is for you. You know what? If you haven't, you can right now. This is what you could do. You could say to God in the quietness of your own heart, I believe. I believe in the life. I believe in the death. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the ascension of Jesus, your son. I know it's true. It's not an accident. I know it happened. I believe this. And I believe that his death was to atone for my sins. And I know that I need my sins atoned for because I know who I am. And I have failed in many ways. I trust in his death for me. And now I give my life to that king. I give my allegiance to him. I bow my knee. I let him tap me on the shoulder with his sword. And I'm his as follower and friend. You pray that prayer and you're a Christian. And you can participate in this meal. Here's how it's going to work today. We're going to begin by passing out the bread. The bread will come right to you. You don't even have to move. Soon afterwards, we'll pass out the juice. Again, it will come right to you. You don't have to move. Then after a time of quiet, we're going to take this meal together as a family, all of us together. But while the elements are being passed out and during the time of quiet, I want to encourage us all to make this our prayer. Let's think about this as we take communion on this first Advent Sunday. It's a kingly prayer. It's a queenly prayer. It's a royal prayer. It's a prayer of dignity. It's a prayer of strength. It's a prayer for disciples who understand what they were made to be when God imagined them. It's a prayer for people who understand their destiny to reign over a new creation and all that that means. Someday we'll unpack that. It's a prayer for those who desperately want the people in their realm, the people who are affected by their lives and character to bloom and blossom rather than to want to go away. And here's the prayer. It's very simple. Lord Jesus, wonderful counselor, what do I need to know to make rain fall on my realm? And as we pray it, let's open our mind to any way the wonderful counselor who's here wants to nudge us, prompt us, direct us. And let's be open to the possibility that his counsel will come. In this moment, maybe later today, maybe this week when we're driving to the gym. And in case you wonder, we all have realms, every single one of us. 
There's not one of us who does not have a realm. For some of us, our realm is the second grade class that we teach. That's our realm. For some of us, it's the two grandchildren we take care of every week, like somebody I work with. That's her realm, raising those precious children. For some, our realm is the machine shop that we own and operate that gives other people their livelihood. That's our realm. For some, our realm is a ministry for which we serve as chair, like Restore or Hillside Covenant. For some, our realm is simply ourself. It's doing our homework. Maybe it's maintaining sobriety. That's the patch that we are responsible for at this moment. We all have realms. We all have realms that need us to be refreshing rain. So let's go to the king. Let's go confidently in meditative prayer. Let's expect him to say something to us. And if not in this moment, later today or this week. Ushers, if you would come forward. Allow me to pray and then our ushers will begin serving. Lord Jesus, wonderful counselor, thank you for dying in our place. Rising again so that we could be restored to you and restored to great dignity the royal purpose for which you created us, being nourishing rain to those in our spheres of influence, our children, our parents, our coworkers, our colleagues, our neighbors. Thanks that you offer us your perfect counsel so that we can be that rain. Bless this bread, bless this juice as we take it in faith and use them to make us receptive to your counsel this week wherever it might come from. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.